0: Hey guys, welcome to another episode on Crossroads and Culture, where life, ministry, and culture meet. I hope you've had a great week and that you're having a great weekend as well in this Christmas season that we're in. I know it seems odd, unusual, crazy. You just insert the adjective that is most appropriate for you in this COVID season, so to speak. Um, I know it's different than what we celebrated or experienced last Christmas, perhaps, But it doesn't change the true meaning of Christmas and what Christmas is all about. The Christmas story. And that's what this episode is about today, is the Christmas story. You know, for me, when I think about the Christmas story, I I don't typically think about genealogy or family trees. I, I think of of Christmas trees, the night before Christmas, the children nestled and all snug in their beds so that I can chill out and drink some decaffeinated coffee. And just look at the Christmas tree lights, right? What is it you think of when you think of Christmas stories? Well, I believe the greatest story ever told is the story of the true Christmas, the birth of Jesus Christ. You know, the four gospels, and those are the first four books of the New Testament Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the Bible and the scriptures. Of those four gospels that highlight the life of, of Jesus, the life of Christ, only two of them begin with his birth the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Matthew. Now, Matthew's story starts very differently than Luke's. It's the same story, but it's almost as if Matthew wants to give the background. He wants to paint the big picture. So he begins the story of Christ's birth with genealogy, a family tree. And the reason he does this is because he's writing to a predominantly Jewish audience and seeking to clarify to them that Jesus came from the line of Abraham and David. He did this so that he would be able to reveal that Jesus was really Jewish and and then to connect Jesus with David because the Messiah, according to the Old Testament scriptures, would come from the line of David. In the Gospel of Matthew, beginning in chapter 1, verses 1 through 25, and due to uh, time here, I'm not going to read that to you, but here's what I would encourage you to do. Is to go back and read that in the scriptures, Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 25. And if you don't have a physical copy of the scriptures, you can obviously go online. Biblegateway.com is a great online resource where you can look up scriptures or you can download the Bible app. Um, there are numerous ways that you could find that scripture. I will also take these, uh, this, these notes, the episode that I'm doing, and I will post this on Sean Bernard wordpress.com. That's my blog, SeanBernard.wordpress.com. Um, and I will have the scriptures on that as well. But I would encourage you, go back and read that. And and I know it seems like at times when you read genealogy in scripture, it's like eating dry toast. Uh, it's not the most enjoyable per se. Uh, when you know one of the things that I strive to do is to read through the scriptures each year. I've been doing that this year. And have been enjoying it immensely in this one-year Bible reading plan. Just trying to get as much of scripture in as possible and just thinking on it and praying through it. Um, but when oftentimes when I've tried to do this before and reading through the scriptures, I get through uh, get to the old testament and the the books that have genealogies and so-and-so had so-and-so or so-and-so begat another. You know, you've you've seen that or heard that perhaps. Um, man, it's like I fall asleep in the middle of reading the scriptures because genealogies just don't intrigue me as much or at least they didn't intrigue me they're more intriguing to me now knowing this but in ancient times genealogies they they mattered and it was important to the story and so in Matthew chapter 1 verses 1 through 25 that's exactly what Matthew's doing he he's unfolding the story of Jesus his birth his ministry his miracles his life his death his resurrection but he begins with the genealogy of Christ. And in this genealogy, this family tree, Matthew includes some pretty interesting people. I mean, these are people with a past, if you know what I'm talking about, those who had a less-than-stellar reputation. In this he the list, he includes two Gentile women, um, Ruth and Rahab. Those are the two he would refer to who were Gentiles, and also people who were considered wicked, just evil, uh, did some things that were completely off the rails he brings up Judah and Tamar and if you know the story of Judah and Tamar um, you 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 realize that Judah was the father-in-law of Tamar and yet as the story goes I'm encouraged you to read that in the book of Genesis Judah is going away on a business trip um, Tamar let me back up because Tamar's husband who was uh, the son of Judah one of the the three sons that it mentions in scripture, Um, he died. And so, as was the custom, the next of kin would take care of the widow. Um, But so there was the other brother who would take care of Tamar. He died. And then there was the younger brother of these two, um, Shelah. And he was too young to take care of or marry Tamar. Um, And so Judah said, when he gets older, um, he he will come for you and take care of you um and and marry you. And so Tamar waited, but Judah did not keep his promise. And so the story goes that Judah eventually he went on a business trip, was coming into the gates of a city, and Tamar had heard about his coming to the city. And so she took off the the widow garments, the word that, that you know kind of pointed to the fact that she was in mourning and um and she dressed herself as a prostitute. And as Judah came into the city, uh, Judah decided he wanted to um, sleep with her. He wanted to find a prostitute, um, and you kind of can, can go from there what would take place. Uh, but um, Tamar did not reveal that who she was. Um, and so the bottom line was that Judah ended up having sexual relationship with Tamar. She ends up getting pregnant, and even in the story in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 1— um, the two who are born by Tamar, these twins, Perez and Zerah, are listed in the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. So you, you look at this, and even the beginnings of this, um, talking about David, who, who with Bathsheba committed adultery. David was one who uh, conspired and um, was part of this murder scheme, almost a hit job, on Uriah, who was the husband of Bathsheba. So you have David, um, you have Abraham who was promised, he and Sarah were promised this, this child, who, who from this child, the nations would be blessed. And Abraham and Sarah got tired of waiting. And the story is that Sarah told Abraham to have a relationship with her maidservant, Hagar. So Abraham had a relationship with Hagar and Ishmael was born as a result of that relationship, and everything just went wheels off. So you look at Abraham and David, and you look at Isaac, who had his issues, and you look at Jacob, who was the father of Judah, who had his issues, and now Judah and Tamar, and you begin to see that the storyline, this, this backdrop, this genealogy is just messed up. So you have Judah and Tamar, then you have Rahab, who Rahab was a prostitute. You read about her in the Old Testament. Bathsheba just mentioned her and her adulterous relationship with with David, with King David. And it seems if he were going to tell the story, he wouldn't mention those distant relatives, especially when you're considering that this is the line from which Jesus, the Messiah, would be born. Right? Why would Matthew include this list, these, these unlikely characters, so to speak, why would he mention them in this, in this story? Well, the reason why Matthew does this is because they're the ones for, for whom a Savior would be born, and not just those in his family tree, but for the entire world. I mean, that's what God says through the prophet Isaiah, right? It, he says in Isaiah 49, verse 6, Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So those in this genealogy and all of humanity are the reason for the gospel story. Now, the gospel is all about God's glory and how Christ came to rescue and save those who are lost, which means it's all of us. He, uh, We all have sinned. We've all have fallen short of the glory of God. We are all a broken people. And so because of God's great love for us, he's he sent his son Jesus into the world to save us rescue us from sin that we might be reconciled or brought back to in relationship with him so as Matthew begins to unfold this story it seems he wanted people to understand the the nature of this gospel he was writing because even he like many in this family tree of Jesus had a past uh, and Matthew wants his audience including you and me to understand the hopeful message of the gospel is the reason why Jesus came that's why Matthew would write from this, perspective. I mean, think about Matthew's life. He was a tax collector, and in those days, tax collectors were utterly despised. They were ostracized. They were isolated. They um, had very few friends. Any friends that they had were probably in the same profession as them. They were outcasts. And so Matthew understood that he would be an unlikely person in this story of, of this miraculous event and the birth of Christ and what Christ would come to do. And so Matthew wants to paint this picture that he's included in, and you and I are as well. So up to that point, you need to know that every religion, including Ju- Judaism, was about, and it still is, what a person had to do in order to be right with God or with their God, little g. Right? In other words, many people think this way, kind of like this, my standing with God is based upon what I've done or what I'm doing. Right there, there were some, many people who think that, and some people believe that today as well, that my standing with God, God is based upon what I've done or what I'm doing. It's based on good works or just being a good person. And some were very self-righteous though, and they they thought their own self-righteousness was enough to get God's approval, right? That they were religious enough or they were good enough. An example would be the the Pharisees, right? Think about the Pharisees. But this is what Jesus said about the Pharisees. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will never see the kingdom of God. Then there were those who knew that they weren't righteous at all, and they felt like there was no way that God would ever want them or that they'd ever be acceptable to God. They had a past. They had a, a reputation. They were as far from God as you could get. And some of you are there maybe on both accounts. Some of you may feel as though you've not that you've been good enough to be right with God, Right, you've done a lot of good things. But there may be some of you who feel as though there's nothing you can do to be right with God. I mean, why would God want me? Maybe that's what you're asking. That was Matthew's story. He was a tax collector, again a deceiver, a social outcast, the, whose friend circle was just those who were just like him. As I mentioned just a minute ago, Matthew knew his brokenness. He even knew what led to his brokenness, which is sin. And that goes back to what Scripture says that that Scripture tells us that we're all sinners, right? Romans three twenty three, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have. There's no way to sugarcoat that that hard truth. right? The reality of humanity is that sin separates us from the one true holy God. But the hope of the gospel is that Jesus has put on flesh, the flesh of humanity, to reconcile us to holy God. So God came in the flesh, in the person of his son Jesus, and Jesus has put on that flesh, the flesh of humanity, to reconcile us to holy God. Colossians chapter 1, verse 21 and 22 says this, And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he's now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. You see, we've all broken the law of God. If nothing else, the Ten Commandments reveal the depravity of our lives and our inability to be good enough. And that's a huge problem when it comes to knowing God. When it comes to having a relationship with God, and when it comes to your desire of wanting to go to heaven when you breathe your last breath here on earth, sinners can't stand in the presence of a holy God in his perfect heaven. So that's a huge dilemma for those in this passage, right? It's a huge issue for Matthew, and it's a huge issue for you and for me. You see, the point of the gospel is not to make you feel guilty for sin, but to show you that you are guilty of sin and in need of a savior. And that is a huge um point that needs to be made and because there are there are several in our culture many people who really base uh what they do and justifications of certain things decisions they make or how they live their life based on how they feel right that it's about my feelings it's about how i feel and it's true that god did give us emotions and feelings but as, as i said in an earlier podcast an, an earlier episode that our feelings should never be the guardrails, right? They, they should never be the the means by which we make decision. But that truth, the truth of God's Word, um, should be the guardrails um, in which our feelings are directed. Um, so, so the point of the gospel is not to make you feel guilty for sin, but to show you that you and I are guilty of sin, and we are in need of a Savior. And the beauty of the gospel is that God has graciously provided the way to relationship with Him through Jesus Christ, and He is the He's the only way, according to John fourteen verse six. Jesus said this. This wasn't. This is not something I'm making up or anybody else is making. This is what Jesus says. He said that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. He didn't say that I am a way or I am a, a, kind of a, an, another way of living I, or. You know, I am I'm, I am life, uh, as well as other things might be life. He didn't say that. Um, he didn't say, I am a truth. He said, I'm the truth. So I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to God the Father except through me. That's a pretty, ex- well, that's not pretty exclusive. It is an exclusive statement. There's no other way we can have a relationship with God except through Jesus. And that's according to what Jesus has said. So what, is, what Matthew's telling us is, is really great news, as we look in this genealogy, and then what also Jesus has said in the Gospel of John, that's really g- great news for sinful, guilty people. And although we're guilty because of sin, God has graciously provided a way through Jesus, who willingly took our sin and our guilt, despising the shame, and He offers us the forgiveness of sin and the hope of salvation. So, th- so this teaching of Christ was totally different than what had been taught in the past by these religiously fervent Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes, the the religious elite, if you will. What had become lost in the observance of man-made laws and traditions and not the law of God, Christ came to speak the truth that it's not about what you do, but what he would do. In other words, it's not based upon our actions that were made right with God, but it is all about what God has done to reconcile us to him. This is one of the fallacies of progressive Christianity. That I'm going to be speaking on in an episode beginning in January. I was wanting it to do it on this episode, but I'm doing some more research, I'm wanting to make sure that that as I um, talk about progressive Christianity, that that I do it in a way that um, is uh, gives some context and and so I want some more time to to write on that. But but progressive Christianity would say that it's about activism. It's about what we do, um, identifying with the oppressed of our uh, of our culture and helping identify with them and be with them and rescue them from this or rescue those who, who are in the midst of a oppressive Christianity, a Christianity that says you have to do certain things or you have to believe certain things. Um, they're wanting to free us from, from the oppression of this. So progressive Christianity, there's a lot to it. I'll get more into it next episode, but the truth of the matter is, uh, it's not based on our actions, about our activism or what we do that we're made right with God. It is all about what God has done to reconcile us in or reconcile us to him. That's what scripture says when it says, for he will save his people from their sins. That's what makes the story of God so incredible. I mean, that one verse is what makes the coming of Jesus as a baby such great news, is that he will save his people from their sins. So the gospel story, it's one of God intervening in our lives, by stepping down to where we are and initiating a relationship with us, not based on what we've done or are doing, but what he has done through Jesus Christ. He initiates it, not you. Right? God spoke, God gave, God sent, God loved first, God proved this by this unlikely entrance into the world. And Matthew 1 talks about this, Matthew 1, verse 20 and verse 23, for that which is conceived in her speaking of Mary, the Virgin Mary, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Behold, the Virgin shall conceive and bear a son. So there's this unlikely entrance into the world. There was there was no fanfare. Uh, they were in Bethlehem. There was a census taking place. There was a lot of activity, but, but what was taking place in this manger, in this stable, if you will, was that God became flesh. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, came, um, who would be and who is the savior of the world and you would think that this savior jesus who is the king of kings would come with this kind of this regal ceremony um, but when you look at the you look at the people who who surrounded that that manger on that on that evening you talk about shepherds right they were they were kind of the, the lower part of the the social spectrum as well Um, here they are invited to this to see what's going on. They would be the ones who would be the evangelists. They would go and tell people, basically, hey, here's what's taking place. Eventually the the magi, who we know as the wise men, would come. So you look at shepherds who were kind of low on the social spectrum, so to speak, and you've got magi and kings who come, and you see that Jesus came for all people. And it was an unlikely entrance into the world. But also, God proved it by by giving us an invitation, it was an invitation to the most unlikely people for an unlikely event. Or Matthew 1.21 says this: "For he will save his people from their sins." I read that to you just a minute ago, right? The Judas and the Tamar's, the Bathshebas, the the Rahabs in the world. And that's you and I. We are just like them, and so he invites us, the most unlikely people. We're not deserving of life. We're not. We've we have sinned against God. We've sinned against His holiness, um, and quite honestly. Um, God's wrath will be poured out on sin. That's just. And and you say, well, that's not very loving. That's another thing that progressive Christianity would talk about is that they don't like to talk about or want to believe in the wrath of God. But the reality is that who, who doesn't exhibit wrath, right? When, when something um, that you think about God's holiness and we've treated Him Um, as though we don't need him. We have broken his laws, we've broken his rules, that there is a righteous anger because of what sin has done to his most precious creation. And God will pour out wrath on sin, is what Scripture says. That's what makes the gospel so incredibly amazing. And what makes the gospel great news or good news is that God has, through Jesus, stepped into this world to take the sin of the world upon himself and he would have God's wrath poured out on him so that you and I would not have to experience the wrath of God, but we experience the forgiveness of God, the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. And so this invitation that he gives to us is incredible because we're just like the ones listed in Matthew chapter 1. So it's an invitation uh, to us as unlikely people. But also he, he proved it by... The ushering in of an incomparable Savior. There's no one like Jesus. There never has been, there isn't, and there never will be. He is incomparable. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, Matthew records this, and they shall call his name, then Jesus' name, Emmanuel, right? Emmanuel just means God with us, that Jesus would be God with us. And so, so you talk about how. How much God loves us, and how He proved to us um, that He wanted to save us, to have a relationship with us. Man, those are just three kind of three examples um, that let us know that that's true. So the question maybe is, so what? What's what's so big about this that it really does reveal the depths of God's love for you and me? What what's what's so great about this? Well, I, I would say that it's because the cos- the gospel of Christmas is evidence of true love that, that engages and it embraces the unlovely and the unlikely for no other reasons than unconditional love and amazing grace. And because God is love, He initiates a relationship with us through His Son, Jesus Christ. God steps into the mess of humanity, and from the mess comes a Savior. That's the point of His story. It's the gospel. It's the story of grace. That, that's what Christmas is all about. Is God came near then, and to this day, He still draws near to you. So God is saying to you today, I'm inviting you to receive what I'm giving to you. It's not based on what you've done, but on what I've done through my son, Jesus. So when I think about this, and Jesus' coming, his birth, without his birth, there's no fulfilled promise of a sinless Savior. Without his death, there's no acceptable sacrifice for our sin. Without his resurrection, there's no victory over sin and death. And without his ascension, there's no expectant longing for his coming again. And so, when I think about Christmas and the Christmas story, I think about Jesus stepping into the mess of humanity and coming from a line of unlikely people to show us that we're the ones for whom he came to save and rescue. And that is the beautiful story of Christmas. And I hope that you, as you've maybe listened to this and that you're thinking about this, that you would realize that there's not anything that you have done that would cause God to say, I don't want you. He absolutely does want you. And he's proven that through sending his son, Jesus Christ, into the world. Maybe some of you are thinking, well, you know what, I'm good enough already. Well, the reality is that within your heart of hearts, you know that you're not good enough. You're, we can't do things that are good enough. We can't fix our sin problem because we're sinners. So we need a sinless Savior to come and rescue us and save us from our sin. So regardless of where you are in that, whether you think you're not good enough or maybe you think you're good enough, the truth is we all need a Savior in Jesus, and we're not our own Savior. So this Christmas season, I hope as you think through this, you would see how incredibly significant the birth of Jesus is. You know, we hear it all the time about Jesus is the reason for the season, um, and that's that's really cliche. I, I get what people are saying, but the story takes the Old Testament prophecies of a Messiah who would come, and he would come because we've wandered in darkness, um, not so much physically, but spiritual darkness. And the law, if anything, has shown us how sinful we are. We can't. And we couldn't keep the law of God. But Jesus, who was prophesied, came into this world born of a virgin whose name was Mary, conceived by the Holy Spirit. And he grew up and lived a sinless life so that he could be the sinless sacrifice for our sin, who would satisfy the wrath of God, so that we, in turning from our sin and turning to Jesus for the forgiveness of sin, could experience life now and life for eternity. I I just, there's nothing better. There's no greater story and there's no greater message that we could ever hear um, and accept than this gospel message. That is the Christmas story. So I hope you and your family have a very Merry Christmas this week. And I look forward to you joining me next time on Crossroads and Culture.